Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello, my name is Greg Monteith. Welcome to the second episode concerning First Steps Module Number 7, entitled Introducing Self-Deceit. Originally, I had planned on airing only one episode on Module 7, but given the volume and importance of this information, I've decided to create several additional episodes to cover this important content. In addition, this material is perhaps the most complex in that it has, in that it has many components, and the most complicated in that some components are just tough to understand, uh, that I have presented to this point. So following this episode, which will be longer, I will be creating a number of shorter episodes on the examples of self-deceit in order to make them as digestible as possible. In the previous episode, I noted how the existence of self-deceit makes sense of my seemingly conflicting statements in arguing on the one hand that evangelical Christianity is extremely dysfunctional, and on the other hand that evangelical Christianity also maximizes human flourishing. In other words, the evangelical Christianity that most of us see and experience is broadly dysfunctional, but when this dysfunction is abated, evangelical Christianity has the resources to maximize human flourishing. Further, I noted that the approach that I take in the Foundations of Flourishing program, which is that participants focused first on learning about themselves and their humanity, rather than starting with God and with the Bible, is based upon the necessity effectively to address self-deceit. In other words, in a context where self-deceit is rampant, we need first to understand, identify, and disarm it. Only then will we be able to read the Bible with the goal of seeking truth, rather than usefulness, and engage with God, or the possibility of believing in God, with a willingness to respect and listen to others, whether to the Bible or to those with views different from our own, instead of seeking our own narcissistic satisfaction. Before expanding on these points, last episode I also explained how self-deceit directly addresses the most problematic aspect of the prevailing evangelical dysfunction, its seeming invisibility to those who participate in it. Having explained last episode why this is so, this episode offers a detailed example of self-deceit in action aimed to help listeners better understand, and skeptics believe, that self-deceit is real and really problematic. I will begin by summarizing self-deceit. To recap, self-deceit is the propensity to develop and maintain false consciousness, which is the belief in a reality when in fact there is none. Thus, we can refer to self-deceit as the mask of self-consciousness and the job of authentic humanity, and indeed authentic Christianity, is to remove the mask and see ourselves as we truly are. In being a type of consciousness, self-deceit is not so much an action as an innate predisposition, the predisposition to dupe ourselves into seeing and believing one thing when a very different thing is actually the case. More precisely, Self-deceit involves a double deception. On the one hand, self-deceit underhandedly enhances my circumstances, and particularly my self-image, by allowing me to believe something that is more comforting, self-promoting, or more incriminating of others than the actual situation or state of affairs would allow. On the other hand, elevating one's self-image while debasing that of others, or simply allowing us to think better of ourselves than we ought, 
is only a diversion, to cover up self-deceit's deeper purpose, to allow us covertly to engage in behaviors that overtly we would claim to reject and stand against, and to get away with it. So self-deceit is something that humans use, albeit unconsciously, to promote a more seemly identity while benefiting from a more sordid morality. Or more accurately, through self-deceit, we view and present ourselves as we most want others to see us while doing the things we claim most to stand against and without ever being held responsible for doing them. Given its function of enhancing identity by allowing me to see and promote myself as being better than I am, while bypassing morality by allowing me to enjoy and or benefit from the things that I claim to disavow, self-deceit is most prevalent where identity and morality are most influenced and or most at stake. Now, because religion makes ultimate claims about human identity and morality, and it requires ongoing demonstration of both, self-deceit can thrive in religious environments. And the more that religious beliefs are naive and unexamined, the more that this is the case. This is because a context of uncritical acceptance is ideal for the growth of the covert and elusive, such as self-deceit. As a result, belief systems lend themselves to instrumental uses by human beings, to the point that self-deceit actually drives belief. In such cases, we adopt a belief because it makes us feel secure or better about ourselves, or releases us from challenging responsibilities, or allows us to concentrate on our real priorities, or justifies us in accusing those who disagree with or mistreat us. The key takeaway about self-deceit is that because human beings are apt to use religious beliefs to their own ends, we tend to believe things not because they are true, but because they are useful, with the aim not of serving God or others, but of serving ourselves. Given such circumstances, Christians are largely resistant to examining let alone modifying our beliefs, not because we are persuaded of their truthfulness, but because, at a certain level, we are afraid of what will be revealed about us as believers if we do so. Namely, honestly examining our beliefs will show that we are not the people that we claim to be. It will show that we value usefulness or pragmatism and not truth. And it will show that our greatest desire is extreme selfishness or narcissism, and not love of God, or proper love of self or other. Modifying or examining our existing beliefs risks revealing, by the most damning of evidence, that we are Christians in word only, and that our hearts and minds, and all other parts, are very far from God. And as I noted last episode, that's a pretty big risk. So in the context of evangelical Christianity, Self-deceit functions to develop and maintain the false consciousness that key beliefs are held because they are true, and that devotion to God, or piety, however flawed or imperfect, is the Christian's main aim. This false consciousness is a mask that we wear to obscure the real consciousness, which is that most evangelicals hold key beliefs because they are convenient, and that narcissism, or extreme selfishness and devotion to self, is the actual true aim of most Christians most of the time. A real reason for holding key beliefs and the real object of our devotion only begin to manifest themselves, however, when these key beliefs are challenged and when the authenticity and particularly the object of our devotion is questioned. 
This will be explained in the examples of evangelical self-deceit coming up. Finally, and to take this discussion full circle by connecting self-deceit with Module 1 of First Steps, false consciousness both thrives on and fosters in various ways and amounts, legalism, fear-based attitudes, and ignorance. So my contention throughout these episodes of Foundation of Flourishing, that it is only by developing relevant skills in place of legalism, appropriate dispositions to displace fear, and true knowledge to combat ignorance, that Christians can possibly overcome their prevailing dysfunction. Or stated otherwise, evangelical dysfunction manifests in legalism, fear, and ignorance. But this dysfunction is so prevalent and so entrenched because it is rooted in rampant self-deceit. So the only effective response is one that both identifies and understands the root issue and one that can address and overcome its accompanying complications which turn out to be both its precursors and its symptoms. Now let's clarify self-deceit with some real-world examples. I want to begin with three high-level observations. First, self-deceit in the context of a monotheistic religion often results in the height of idolatry, creating our own God for our own purposes while claiming to worship and serve the true God, and to do so just as well, if not better, than anyone else. Second, the proper functioning of self-deceit, by which I mean the creation and obfuscation of clandestine and illicit patterns of behavior, requires a certain stability within whatever context this self-deceit exists. As such, the importance of maintaining the status quo in religious contexts cannot be overstated. The result is that any attempt genuinely to identify and especially to challenge the systems and norms within a religious community is typically met with staunch resistance and even denouncement. Third, when self-deceit occurs in a religious context, it is typically pervasive. This does not mean that where it occurs, self-deceit operates to the same extent or in the same way for each person in any given context. Yet where it does occur, it will typically be present and active on a fairly broad level, regardless of the specifics of its activity I have a number of real-life examples of self-deceit within evangelical contexts. In this episode, I will present one example in detail. In subsequent episodes, I'll present four or five more examples with a little less detail, but covering some different situations. Example 1. My first example has two slightly different presentations. It focuses on the way that self-deceit allows its participants to prioritize usefulness over truth and selfishness over love. This example also demonstrates my point of last episode about self-deceit impacting human faculties and virtues. Here, self-deceit actually directs our theories and beliefs, whether consciously held or otherwise, our theories and beliefs about what and how we know. The first presentation of this example involves Christians, typically evangelical Christians, claiming that they do not interpret the Bible, but simply read what's there because that's just the way the Bible, the Bible reading works or the way that it's supposed to be for Christians. The second presentation of this example involves Christians, again, mainly evangelical Christians, claiming that the Holy Spirit helps them to understand the Bible correctly without them needing any assistance or needing to develop any particular skills or knowledge. The problem, of course, is that such claims run contrary to both strong biblical and strong experiential evidence. 
With the first presentation, a Christian cannot hold the belief that she or he knows what the Bible means without interpreting it, and so without needing to develop particular skills as a reader, such as exegesis, or to acquire assistance from outside sources, such as commentaries and biblical scholarship, without running afoul of numerous biblical examples about human limitations and ignoring numerous biblical injunctions about the perils of overstepping those limitations. For example, the Bible is clear that only God knows fully and correctly, and so to claim to know fully and without the need for interpretation or outside assistance is to claim to be like God, which is idolatry. With the second presentation, Christians cannot claim that the Holy Spirit gives them perfect or even sufficiently good understanding of the Bible without running afoul of real-life examples, such as when a group of Christians discuss the meaning of a biblical passage and invariably a variety of different answers are given. Surely, if the Holy Spirit were properly guiding them, they would all have the same or nearly the same answer. This is in addition to the absence of any biblical material that would support such a belief. In other words, there's no justifiable reason by any Christian standards for any Christian to believe either that when reading the Bible, she or he just reads what's there without needing to interpret, or that the Holy Spirit guarantees the right understanding or even a sufficiently good understanding. Yet despite this, these views remain popular, very popular, in evangelical circles. More so, should an attempt be made to persuade such Christians of the reasonableness of the evidence against their belief, my experience is that such discussions can be endless and yet go nowhere. No amount of evidence and no argumentation, no matter how sound, avails to change the minds of those who hold these views, or even to push them to reassess their position. Why? Or perhaps more to the point, what could this mean? The logical implication, when sound argument and abundant evidence are completely unpersuasive, is that the belief is based on neither. In other words, when abundant evidence and sound logic are of no use for persuasion, this clearly indicates that the belief is not held for reasons related to its truthfulness. It is based on something else, or held for some other reason. At this point, we can return to my earlier point that self-deceit affects what and how we know. So, while claims to correct an effortless Bible reading are not unfamiliar, any claim that runs contrary both to sound logic and available evidence is almost never simply about what it seems to be about. So where claims to correct yet effortless Bible reading would seem to concern the claimant's theology, or understanding of Bible reading, or even their theory of knowledge, there's definitely more to the picture. For below what seem on the surface to be the dominant concerns, and out of sight, lies the real concern, meeting one's own needs and covering it up through self-deceit. Once we become aware of self-deceit and attuned to the circumstances when it is likely to arise, this changes everything. So instead of asking for justifications for beliefs that seem plainly to lack a justifiable basis, an awareness of self-deceit leads us to probe elsewhere. We start by asking questions designed to reveal hidden reasons or motives. For example, 1. What are the benefits of holding such a belief? 2. Who or what is served, or what need or concerns are met by holding such a belief? 3. What is the result of holding such a belief from the perspective of the holder versus the perspective of others? 
These questions, you will notice, are specifically not aimed at investigating the rationale or reasonableness of the belief, but at uncovering the hidden, and likely true, motives for holding it. This is a crucial distinction, because an approach that focuses on evidence and logic assumes that, and so is only helpful in cases where, truthfulness is the reason for holding a belief, and therefore the standard by which any belief is judged. Yet where truthfulness is ruled out, as in this case, the second approach is indispensable, for only by uncovering the real reason for holding a belief can any type of productive conversation about the belief or evaluation of the belief occur. Let's consider both parts of our first example from the perspective of self-deceit. What are the benefits? To begin, the benefits of this belief are that it renders a task that is time-consuming, difficult, and of uncertain outcome, because biblical passages may not mean what we initially think or guess, it renders that task quick, easy, and certain. So in place of feeling confused and or inadequate about understanding exegesis, or recognizing and accessing the proper resources for exegesis, or adjudicating between competing exegetes and their views, those holding this view can be calm regardless of how difficult a passage may appear because they can be confident that their understandings of the Bible are always correct. Christians holding this view have more time to focus on other tasks, not only because they understand the Bible quickly, easily, and with certainty, but because holding this view also grants greater assurance by allowing them to believe that they are living the Christian life correctly and greater clarity concerning what Christian service is best and how to go about carrying it out. This means not only bypassing unproductive debates about biblical meaning, but also less time planning or considering the, quote, most Christian, end quote, course of action, and more time simply doing what this person knows, in quotation marks, to be the right course of action. Further, because it is self-validating in that the holder proves the validity of this view simply by producing at any point quick, easy, and certain explanations of the Bible, any criticism of this view can either be attributed to the sinfulness of non-Christian critics, who obviously do not have the Holy Spirit, or the lack of piety or devotion of Christian critics, who obviously do not have enough assistance from the Holy Spirit. Finally, because it requires no corroboration, no re-evaluation, and even no explanation, holding this belief requires little or no energy, and so it's relatively easy to maintain it indefinitely. The result is that the believer portrays and views herself as someone whose strong faith allows her to be confident about the Bible's meaning and thus calm and focused about her life and ministry as a Christian. Yet from an outside perspective, it's clear that she achieves these results by holding a belief that is idolatrous and self-serving in nature because she benefits from supposedly quick, easy, and correct understandings by effectively claiming to be like God and by holding a belief that is idolatrous and self-serving in its adoption and perpetuation, because she or he bases the belief on circular logic, refusing to examine the biblical evidence for this belief by virtue of claiming already to know the Bible's meaning. The same believer portrays himself as deeply valuing the Bible and likely caring about others. Yet through this belief, she or he routinely disregards biblical meaning in order either to focus on personal goals or prematurely to bypass the planning and discernment stages, 
with an aim of promoting his preferred action plans or ministry goals. Finally, this believer portrays herself as serving God just as well, if not better, than others. Yet in holding a belief that requires no corroboration, reevaluation, or explanation, and that is self-justifying, all again based on the circular logic of presupposing rather than proving the truth of her Bible reading, she completely immunizes herself from critique. In being cut off from and superior to all others, she serves and values only herself. As I believe the above demonstrates, the contrast between the mask of false consciousness and the unmasked real consciousness could not be starker. As we draw conclusions about the motives for holding this belief, two points need to be made. First, we can never directly access motives, those of others or even our own. Yet the basic understanding that normal, sane humans act for a reason, even if this this reason is unknown to the actor, allow us to draw inferences about motives from the correlation between belief content and the answers to our earlier questions. Second, If it is not already so, it will become apparent that the motivation for holding such beliefs relates solely to the benefits derived from doing so. Yet it is important to distinguish between, on the one hand, motives that relate to the benefits of holding a view, and on the other hand, the deeper, core motives that actually prompt a Christian to develop patterns of belief that favor usefulness to truthfulness and selfishness to service of God, self, and other. And I'll be addressing that in just a moment. As should be clear then, the motivation for holding such a belief is based entirely on the supposed benefits that it confers to the holder rather than on any value inherent to the belief itself, such as its truthfulness, its conformity with other beliefs, its alignment with our core values, or how it makes sense of what was previously misunderstood or incomprehensible. In brief, the motivation for holding this belief is that it serves the holder, It is both useful in that it gives confidence and peace of mind relative to the Bible, and it is self-promoting in that it offers perceived advantages relative to living the Christian life and both exempts the holder from justifying his views and shields him or her from critique. Yet why is having confidence and peace of mind relative to the Bible so important that meeting that need comes as a priority over the need for the belief to be true? Or, why is the need to have it my way and feel fully justified and sidestep criticism more important than holding a belief that actually serves God, self, and other, rather than one that simply feeds my selfish needs? Is it simply that, depending upon the person and the situation, the human propensity for self-deceit will always surface? Or that evangelical Christianity is unavoidably vulnerable to self-deceit? I don't think that either other case... Instead, we can best answer these questions by looking at the deeper or root motives for believing something. We do so by questioning the surface motives that we've just identified, such as asking, what deeper need do the supposed benefits of this belief, which we have shown to be the surface motivation for holding it, what do they address or take care of? So an identified surface motivation is the benefit of Bible reading being quick, easy, and correct which creates confidence and peace of mind for the reader. The implication is that the deeper motivation for holding this belief is that its supposed benefits offset 
related but hidden deficits in the holder's life relative to the Bible. And given the importance of the Bible to Christian faith, perhaps to the person's entire faith structure. In other words, a Christian holds this false belief because it addresses or takes care of the reality that, at a deeper level, this person feels deeply anxious about his or her inability to understand the Bible, and so feels out of control and incompetent when it comes to Christian life and ministry. The deeper motivation, then, is the desperate need to feel in control and competent with the Bible, in order to believe that one is, if you will, getting it right as a Christian, and to experience the sense of calm and peace that accompanies, on the one hand, the sense that one's life and beliefs are in harmony, and on the other hand, that is, in according, that is, according to the Bible, what Christians are supposed to feel when they are in right relationship with God. So desperate, in fact, is this need that the person is an easy target for and or is very willing to be co-opted by self-deceit in order to create a facade that her deep faith in God results in being both better by being more competent and calm and being more satisfied by having more assurance about Christian living and more clarity about Christian ministry than is the case in reality. Finally, we can in turn ask, what is the origin of this person feeling deeply anxious about his or her inability to understand the Bible and feeling out of control or incompetent relative to Christian life and ministry? Admittedly, it is impossible to answer such a question confidently without being speculative or without having either a very deep, honest conversation with the person or a fuller understanding of his or her history and experiences, or likely without having both. Nevertheless, the following list represents the likely candidates, the drivers, if you will, of such a massive charade. These are some of the big bad truths that on the one hand we find ourselves powerless, unwilling, or lacking the skills, dispositions, and knowledge to change or improve, and on the other hand, in exchange for its embracing its hollowness, self-deceit allows us not to see and no longer to worry about. Also, for most people, multiple drivers will be at play, the more so where the person's Christian faith is naive and unexamined. Here are some of these potential drivers. Being locked in the perspective of a morbid past. Being daunted in the face of a complex task, such as exegesis. Being afraid of the implications of a world without strict order or even a less controlled world. Lacking the resources to inform myself or teach my family. Being disappointed at the prospect that former teachers or parents were wrong. Being unprepared to triage the sheer volume of information. Being unskilled to interpret the meaning of texts and actions. Being overwhelmed by the scope of the mandate for Christian life and living, yet the lack of support. Being unwilling to tell myself the truth. Being scared to admit that when it comes to core tasks, I don't know what I'm doing. Further, the probability that self-deceit will be implicated in any or all of the above is significantly increased when the participant has been conditioned towards dysfunction through living in a dysfunctional family, church, or community. 
The above represent the unseen drivers of self-deceit, the stakes that make us particularly vulnerable to and or for which we become willing to make a wager on self-deceit. And in the opposite direction, the above list represents the compensatory behaviors or coping strategies that are employed by those caught in the unreconcilable opposition and unproductive tension between a worldview that must be believed and or lived out, yet which shows itself to be in so many ways unbelievable and or unlivable. And this is the sad reality of dysfunctional Christianity. It is not believable by outsiders and ultimately not livable by insiders. This unreconcilable or irreconcilable opposition between a worldview that the holder must, for some reason, believe, such as the fear of going to hell, in quotation marks, otherwise, and embody, yet which shows itself to be unbelievable and or unlivable, points us right back to the material that we covered in modules one and two. There we saw how legalism, fear, and ignorance are prominent when Christians lack the proper skills, dispositions, and knowledge. In particular, I noted three primary fears that are most likely to afflict Christians. One, the fear that I am not smart enough, that my beliefs are wrong or insufficient. Two, the fear that I am not good enough, that I will never be the Christian that I am meant to be. Three, the fear that I am not committed enough, that I am really an imposter. In returning to our starting point in Modules 1 and 2, listeners might wonder why this circular route was necessary. If these primary fears are so, so prominent and important, then why not address them more fully right in Module 1, rather than raising them there but not addressing them until six modules later? The reason is that only by approaching these primary fears indirectly and by demonstrating their negative impact through practical real-life examples can participants begin to recognize how, and how much, the above fears and drivers actually reflect their own personal fears and drivers, rather than viewing these fears and drivers as hypothetical, and so effectively ignoring them. In other words, this detour is crucial for these deep concerns and fears to be personally admitted, felt, and understood. The detour, in other words, allows participants to come to a place where vulnerability, and hence honesty, is possible. And it is only beginning from such a point that healing and change are possible. To summarize my response to the preceding beliefs about Bible reading, the bottom line is that such beliefs are both extraordinarily convenient or pragmatic, because they require no effort yet guarantee the best outcome. And they are highly selfish or narcissistic, because they ignore all other views and even the Bible's own content and its criticism of those who would see themselves as equal with God or those who use Scripture instrumentally, that is, who use it as an instrument to meet their own needs. Ironically, while those who hold these beliefs typically claim to value God and the Bible above all else, these reading strategies actually debase God and disregard the very book that the reader claims to cherish. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, 
untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your request, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.